Good evening. Just want you to know I'll be looking a lot at the front row this evening. The Razorbacks are playing right now. Zane has given me signals. Tell me the score as we go along. Well, I came in this, uh, this afternoon to do some work and the building was abuzz with VBS or BBS as the kids call it, Vacation Bible School, I guess is how you say it. But I'm so, so thankful for all the hard workers we have here and the rooms look great. It's gonna be an awesome, awesome BBS. Thank you guys so much. And hopefully we can get a good crowd and uh, really make some connections there. We're continuing our series on spiritual warfare by looking at the different pieces of armor on Sunday evenings. And of course, on Sunday mornings, we're looking at different aspects of this fight of our lives. When it comes to Roman soldiers and examining the armor that they put on, y'all often wonder if Paul in prison was sitting there looking at uh, uh, the, the, the Roman soldier and studying his, just his persona, the way, the way he carried himself. Maybe even he had seen that armor and he was making a connection with the armor to, you know, the different pieces that we put on for this spiritual fight. You know, when we talk about Roman soldiers, they wore extensive armor that was good, but no armor can cover you fully. There's always going to be gaps, otherwise you couldn't move, right? So in the different pieces of armor, there would be creases that would not be covered by anything because you'd have to be immobile. And so one way to combat this was through use of a shield. Now we often think of a shield as a piece of metal, maybe circular shape that the soldier would hold out in front of him so he could wield his sword, but that's not really the type of sword that Paul, or excuse me, shield that Paul would have been talking about. Think more in terms of a door, a big heavy piece of metal shaped like a door that had handles on the back of it that a soldier would, would set in front of him and get behind to keep him from being hit by the arrows that were shot at him by the enemy. Well, of course, the enemy soon realized that his arrows wouldn't do much good hitting that piece of metal. And so they would take the arrow shaft and hollow it out and put flammable liquid in it. They would set the tip of the arrow on fire, and that way, when the arrow struck the metal or maybe even the armor of the soldier, it would burst into flames. The liquid would seep down into maybe the crevices in the armor of the soldier, and he would be burned severely, maybe even burned to death. Of course, necessity is the mother of invention, and so, so to combat this, the soldiers started soaking, uh, actually they'd cover their shield in leather and then soak it in water so that when the arrows hit it, they would fizzle out and not burn. You know, the devil is constantly shooting his fiery darts at us, namely in the form of temptation. And every single one of us, every single one of us knows what it's like to be hit. Every one of us have been hit more than once with Satan's fiery darts. Our hearts are like that pile of wood just waiting to be set ablaze by a fiery dart of temptation. And the arrow strikes our heart and immediately we are engulfed, inflamed in lust or greed or gossip or envy or whatever it may be. With the flaming arrow lodged in our hearts, we succumb and we suffer the consequences of sin. The shield of faith is there to protect us, but what good does it do if we don't use it or if we try to get behind it after the fact? 
Temptation, we have to understand, it's not a sin. Remember, Jesus was tempted in all points, yet did not sin. He was without sin. Temptation can lead to sin, but it is not sin in and of itself. Sin doesn't even exist until it is united with our lust. James said, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This tells me that we've got to cut off sin in its early stages. Before it ever develops, we've got to cut it off at the temptation stage. We have to start there because temptation, when not handled effectively, gives birth to sin, which in turn brings forth death. I want you to notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 12. He says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Again, Paul uses this imagery of armor, and he says that Christians are to put on the armor of light. And he later says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in first century Rome, the idea of putting on a person meant that you incorporated that person's principles and examples and character. The Greeks would often say put on Plato or put on Socrates. And what that meant is that you would put on the very essence of their being. You would try to be as much like them as possible. So when Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, of course, that we are to be like him as much as possible, that we are to get acquainted with him in a very intimate way, to know him fully and to be known by him. And along with putting on Jesus Christ, Paul says to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. When you make provision for something, you provide for it, you you supply it, right? You feed it. Why should we not feed the flesh? Well, I think that's obvious because we know where that leads. It comes back to bite us. And success in the battle against Satan will hinge on how well you have protected yourself. So have you fortified your soul? Have you built a wall around it? When I was living in Charlotte, Arkansas, there was an extended period of time, Libby might remember this, where we were awakened every morning by a woodpecker. They would peck incessantly on the tree just outside our window. And woodpeckers are very persistent. You ever seen one work? They, they peck and peck and peck. They drill that hole so that they can get whatever food that they can get. And if they, don't, if they don't get anything, if they come up empty, they just move over and try another spot until they get what they're after. They're very persistent, looking for that soft spot in the wood that will yield them some sustenance. And Satan is similar. He pecks and pecks. He drills and drills till he finds that soft spot. And then he takes advantage of it. So, what specifically can we do to shield ourselves from the devil and his devices? Well, I think we start with resistance. And although that sounds elementary, stick with me. It's vital to our success. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about craving righteousness. That's really the key. You've got to crave it. You've got to desire this. I can give you all the sermons about faith and about building on a firm foundation and about craving and desiring righteousness but it all comes down to how bad do you want it? How bad do you want this? Because your desire for it is going to dictate how much you pursue it. 
And you'll never be successful in defeating the devil until you crave and search for righteousness more than anything. Submit therefore to God, James said, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So the first step in fighting temptation is saying no to the devil. That sounds easy, right? But so many times we want to we wanna teeter. We want to stick our toe in the water. We just want to feel out sin. We want to kind of dance around the periphery of it. The devil can work with maybe or eh, I don't know. It's hard to argue with no. Many years ago, we had a, a saleswoman show up at our home asking if we would like to buy this $3,000 contraption. It was a, a carpet cleaner, shampooer. And she said, uh, I'll come in and I will shampoo two rooms for free, and then you can decide. Well, we were going to shampoo the carpets anyway. So we said, yeah, go for it. So she shampooed two, two of the rooms, the carpet in both of those rooms. She got done, and she brought in the heavy. Okay, so here comes the guy to come in and close the deal. And I was in another room doing something. Libby was being very kind, and uh, he was being pretty forceful. He actually went from $3,000 down to $250. So, I mean, this was going to be a, a great bargain. It tells you how much the thing was worth, probably. Finally, after, after several minutes of conversation, my wife said, well, you just have to talk to your husband. And I came in there, and, and the guy was getting a little upset because we weren't, you know, going all in and buying this thing. And I walked in the room, and he started with me, and I said, nope, we'll see you. He just looked at me and said, no, get out, we're done. Well, he had to leave. You know, if we'd sat there and say, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what does it do again, you know? But no means no. And it's hard to argue with no. You slam the door on the devil. You don't operate in maybe or let's talk about this. It's, it's, a, it's a decisive no because it's hard to argue with no. Let me think about it or maybe leaves the door open for the devil to get a stranglehold. And he's a master salesman. Our response needs to be firm, stubborn, and defiant. Anything else allows him to turn up the heat. A second critical strategy to extinguishing the fiery darts of Satan is to make up our minds ahead of time. When it comes to sin, it's the prior thought that most often is to blame. And so we get control of our thoughts. We, allow, we can't allow our minds to run wild and then stop short of sin. How powerful are uncontrolled thoughts? Notice what is written in Genesis chapter 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Thoughts motivate acts. So our sinful deeds usually begin in the mind. Evil thoughts fuel evil acts. The idea that it's okay for me to think evil so long as I don't do evil is a lie stemming from the father of lies. The biggest playground for the devil is an uncontrolled thought life, an unprotected mind. That is why Paul wrote, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Oftentimes, we've, we give in to temptation because we haven't prepared ourselves ahead of time. We haven't thought about it ahead of time so that when the pressure is on, we know what to do. We cave because we don't have a plan. Remember when Daniel was taken from Jerusalem, deported to the court of a, of a foreign king? Remember that he was concerned because, for instance, the, the king had a different menu 
than Daniel. Daniel knew that he was either going to have to make some concession or stand firm and perhaps risk death. But before he faced the demands of the king, he decided that he was not going to partake. Notice Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And what I love about this passage is that phrase, he made up his mind, is a term in the Hebrew that is also used to describe the making of a rope. So a rope maker would gather all the fibers that he had collected and he would twist them all together to make a strong cord that was difficult to break. That is precisely what Daniel did before he faced the temptation in Nebuchadnezzar's court. He gathered every bit of wisdom and reason and courage that he had and made a determined decision. Though it it could possibly cost him his life, he still stood firm and he wouldn't give in. So we don't wait for the music of temptation to start playing before we decide what we're going to do. We prepare ahead of time so that when temptation comes, we're just doing what we've always done. We're just being what we've always been, right? Philippians 4 and 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Take a stand before temptation comes. Right here, right now, before there is any temptation, draw a hard line in the sand to say, not for any reason whatsoever. I'm not going to step across this line. Not ever. A third component to protecting ourselves from Satan's fiery darts is staying engaged. Again, that sounds pretty elementary, but you think about it, so many times we passed We pass the temptation test, and then we think we're good. But as we know, temptation is going to come over and over again. It's not a one-shot deal. It's not something that we can withstand one time and feel like we're over it and that we can move forward free of any sort of care about the future. Remember that Jesus' temptation came after fasting 40 days. He was hungry, he was weak, and the devil was ready and waiting. I think about Elijah. You know, when he... When he took on the 450 prophets of Baal, the devil didn't bother trying to tempt him with discouragement. He waited until after the confrontation and after Elijah had run 20 miles back to Jezreel. And then he hit Elijah with Jezebel's murderous threats. And I imagine that Elijah was extremely exhausted in a weakened state. He was most vulnerable, which is precisely why the devil chose that moment. Elijah's defenses crumbled and gave way to discouragement. It's hard for Satan to get our full attention when we're busy doing the Lord's work. But once that goal or that task is accomplished, we have to be diligent to remain guarded. The wise soldier will stand ready at all times. You know, this past week at preacher training camp, each day we bring in speakers to talk to the young men about different aspects of ministry or life. And on Thursday, we had two-star general in the U.S. Army, Greg Cheney, and he talked to them about being ready at all times. He talked about when he was deployed for a year over in uh, Baghdad, that his job was to move around national leaders, some of our allies, moving them around, making sure they got from place to place safely. And the question was asked, did you ever take a hit? Did any of your 
if your guys take a hit in those convoys? And he said, no, but, but one behind the convoy that he was in control of did. And he said the reason why is because they got complacent. They just got to thinking that they were safe because they had, I guess, traveled that road many times. And unfortunately, it cost them. We got to stay ready at all times. Even when things seem to be going well, Peter said, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. We have to stay engaged. A moment's weakness can have tragic consequences, and so we keep moving forward. In verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, but resist him, firm in your faith. And then he closes out his second letter with these words, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, it's like riding a bicycle. As long as you're pedaling, you're fine. You stop, you know, you're going to fall over. So keep moving forward. Keep growing, keep maturing, keep serving, keep praying, keep studying, all those things. Reminds me of the story about a, a man who had a friend who refused to get internet. He said, well, how, how can you live? You don't have email? You, know, you don't have a smartphone? You have one of those dumb phones? How, how do you live? How do you communicate? I mean, you're not on social media. Like, you're, you're living in the Stone Age. And the man said, you know, I've got enough temptation. And for me, that's just one more temptation that I don't want to have to deal with. How willing are you to do away with the things that could cost you in the long run? The things that tempt you? How serious are you about battling temptation? Remember many, many years ago in a church far, far away, I had a counseling session with a young lady that uh, she had had an affair and the gentleman that she had had the affair with worked with her. And her and her husband had decided that they were going to work it out, that they were going to move forward and get past it. And I said, uh, so are you ready to quit your job? And she said, well, I can't, I can't quit my job. I make, you know, so many thousand dollars a year. I said, but the guy still works with you, right? She said, yes. I said, what are you going to do about that? How serious are you? How aggressive are you with dealing with the temptation, with dealing with sin, confronting sin, or at least the possibility of it? Are we ready to take drastic measures? Are we ready to go as far as we need to? I mean, suppose you have a thousand acre ranch and somebody offers you a good piece of money for it. And so you sell all of it but one acre. You want to keep one acre right in the middle of it. Now, in order to get to that one acre, you've got to go across the other land. Maybe it's pretty rugged terrain. You cut a path, you cut a road to get to that one acre that you have in the middle of that land. If you don't cut a path, it's going to be a lot harder to get there, right? You think about Satan cutting a path to your heart. If you block it off, he can't get there. When we make provision for something, we allow a path to be cut to our heart. We allow Satan to have an inroad. No road makes it difficult. The most reliable way to stay away from sin is to not build a road. Don't make it easy to access your heart. You're constantly struggling with temptation. So don't let the devil have a road in. Eliminate all provisions. Destroy all roads that make it possible to have access. Make no provision for the flesh. And we said at the beginning, to be stubborn, I would add, be accountable as well. Kent did a great job this morning 
talking about how we should have an accountability partner. Someone to hold us accountable. Now, it takes a special friend to do that. But maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need someone to hold us accountable, a good friend that will pray with us, that we can bear our heart to, someone who's willing to check up on us and ask us how we're doing, confront us if need be. Not for the purpose of condemning, but for the purpose of of helping. Not letting God down, unfortunately, isn't always enough motivation. It should be. Sometimes it takes a trusted friend to help you as well, that holds you accountable, that you have to face, that won't allow you to skate by. The wise Solomon wrote, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either one of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Everyone needs a trusted friend who is there to lift them up when they're low. And everyone can use a trusted friend to hold them accountable as they tread the narrow path. You know, a lot of us are, I think, traveling down the right path. I think all of us here this evening are traveling down the right path. You know, we're pretty hard on ourselves and you know, we get self-deprecating pretty easily when it comes to our, our spiritual welfare. But most of us, if not all of us, are traveling down the right spiritual path. It's just easy to do this when you're traveling down it, isn't it? Oh, wait, what was that? You go a little further. Oh, yeah, yeah. So let's go see what that is. And so we need somebody to kind of go, come on, you're good. Quit looking at the squirrels and everything. Come on, you know, keep going down the right path. We all need someone to help us in that respect. The presence of Jesus and the presence of a friend brings about powerful change in our lives. I was reading about this certain kind of ant that has a passion for a sweet, glandular substance that is released by a caterpillar of a particular butterfly. And the ants love this substance so much they can't get enough of it. So they will take the caterpillar, pick it up, and take it back to their nest where they can enjoy that sweet substance. What they don't realize is that they are bringing the enemy right into their home because that caterpillar, once inside of the nest, feasts on the larvae of the ant. But the ants pay no attention because they're so mesmerized by that sweet glandular substance found on the caterpillar. They don't even realize that they brought the enemy right into their house. That kind of sounds like us sometimes, doesn't it? Sometimes the devil doesn't have to knock. Sometimes the door is wide open and he just walks right in. Sometimes we're so busy enjoying the sweet substance of sin that we don't even realize that we're being eaten alive. We allow the devil access into our own home without even stopping to think that this could be dangerous, that this could lead to somewhere really, really bad for us, that it could be tragic, that it could be fatal spiritually. So we build a wall around our hearts. We get really stubborn. We get really aggressive. And we decide that under no uncertain terms are we going to allow him to have a road in. That we're going to block it off, we're going to wall it off, we're going to do whatever is necessary to not give the devil an open door of opportunity. My friends, we have to mobilize and we have to attack. 
If you haven't heard it enough already, this is the fight of our lives. And to be complacent or to just act like it's no big deal or to be lackadaisical means death. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for who you are, for the church, for Jesus, for hope. God, may we always, always have that shield of faith that we get behind, that we realize that we're not fighting this battle alone, that we're fighting with you and with these other soldiers, and may we always, always seek to rise victorious by relying on you and living at the center of your will. Thank you, God. Thank you so much for your love and grace and mercy, and it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So Jim's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you in some way tonight, we've said it throughout this series. There's no reason for you to leave here without hope. There's no reason for you to leave here a loser. As long as there's breath in your lungs, you have the opportunity at victory. So if you feel wounded, if you feel defeated, let us help you. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.